You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Italy's new Prime Minister meets her EU counterparts. The UK government's stoking of xenophobia prompts a diplomatic spat with Albania. And are you being judged or judging others on accent alone? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Mandori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Pellet and Philippe Malier, will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Let's go now to our panel, uh, Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Philippe Marlier, Professor of French and European Politics at University College London. Um, Daniela, you have been travelling. You have been to Washington, D.C. I have. Uh, what were you doing there? Were you in any respect attempting to solve any of the world's problems, of which there are many? Not really. It was a combined uh, work and leisure trip, or as the Americans like to call it, leisure, I understand. <coughs> so that, that that was what you gleaned while in Washington, D.C., the, was... the, the Americans say leisure in a weird fashion. We are talking about accents a bit later in the show, well, so that that is good foreshadowing. Right? Well done. I think I did well there, yes. Another thing when it comes to foreshadowing and my experience of America is that whenever I go there, I become posher and posher till I'm really like, you know, channeling our, our dear late queen. See, we will also be talking about that in the same accent-related item. So that is outstanding foreshadowing. Um, Philippe, you are, as I understand it, going somewhere, but for you it's not a controversial choice because you are going to your, in fact, hometown, which you can now, well, you can either plug it to our listeners, which will, of course, cause hordes of Monocle 24 listeners to descend upon it, or you can, con- or you can send them somewhere else because they, they won't know where you were born. It's up to you. I think it's a pretty fairly well-known uh, destination for British tourists. You just have just need to cross the channel and get in this uh, Calais region. And it's a beach resort called Le Touquet, it's a town. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nice one indeed. Uh, very nice, very nice sandy beaches and nice town. So I happen to be coming from that, uh, <laughs> that city. So uh, it's, uh, it's a sort of trip to, uh, it's a leisure trip as well, and to visit my family. So, but if other people are moved to go there by that encomium, what, what do you recommend they see or do when they get there? I think essentially to enjoy the the, sort of the beach and uh, the, uh, of course, now it won't be a good time to, if you wanted to sort of uh, swim, but uh, certainly they're very nice walks. They're very beautiful, uh, big uh, dunes. And and the city itself is, is, is cute. It's a very, uh, it's a very beautiful, typical uh, northern town uh, beach resort. Uh, in the north of France, not Britain, so it's a bit, it's a bit different from what you get in the in the southern England uh, in terms of uh, beach resorts. So it's worth trying and visiting. It's it's, it's yeah. not Margate, is what you're saying? No, it's not. Not, not that there's anything wrong with Margate. No, before. no, absolutely not. Anybody? I like Margate too. Well, actually, maybe there is. I've never been. Indeed, I was there only the other week. <laughs> <laughs> Were you indeed? Um, we are, I fear, deviating somewhat from the point here. Uh, we should start with today's headline story, which is in the last few hours. Uh, Italy's new Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, might have racked up records for the largest number of limp handshakes offered in a single day and photo opportunities avoided. Maloney is in Brussels, undertaking 
taking her first proper round of meetings with her fellow EU heads of government, few, if any of whom, have sounded altogether enthused about the prospect of dealing with Maloney or the far-right nationalist coalition with which she governs. Um, Philippe, first of all, it has been interesting to note that the the various EU panjandrums she was going to meet have been tripping over themselves to emphasise the importance of Italy as a country. I mean, not unreasonably, it's an important country, but are they are they trying to win her over? I think it's, it's absolutely a major country in the EU. It's one of the founding members in uh, 1957. It's a large economy, although a bit in trouble, and that's probably explains to some extent Meloni's behavior, which is probably to sort of uh, uh, meet with the uh, our EU partners and probably get along with them as, as well as she can. Uh, so, yes, I think the, the EU will be a kind of, uh, it's a sort of absolutely necessary on the, on, the, on the part of the EU to meet with her, to know what her intentions are. And for Meloni, I think she really can't afford to antagonize the, the EU because of uh, Italy's uh, economic uh, situation. For instance, she could have gone and visited a, a fellow partners, politically speaking, you know, in Hungary or Poland. She didn't mm. do that. She met, uh, first of all, uh, the day after her re- election in Rome with uh, President Macron of France. So that, that shows really an intent. And the intent is really to, 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 to signal that Italy uh, has been uh, in the center of uh, EU affairs. It will remain. And uh, just one thing, you know, uh, Italy is uh, the beneficiary of a gigantic COVID recovery fund, you know, 200 uh, uh, billion euros are being given to Italy to recover from COVID. Italy was particularly hit by it. So uh, that's why, you know, she really has to compromise. Uh, She comes from the far right, but now she's the prime minister of Italy. It's a different position. Well, yeah, it, it often is. She may be in that process of learning the hard way that it is it is one thing to be the insurgent outsider and quite another thing to be actually in charge of getting stuff done. Um, Daniela, do we have a clear line yet on what she personally makes or thinks of the EU? Because in common with right-wing nationalist populism across Europe, there's been quite a lot of EU bashing on her side of Italian politics and among her party, the Brothers of Italy. Uh, But she gave a recent speech to Parliament in which, aside from making the pro forma denunciations of fascism and Mussolini, which you only really have to make uh, when there's perhaps reasonable grounds for people to suspect you in that department. Uh, she she didn't talk about Italy leaving the EU. She didn't reject the EU. She sort of went in on the change from within line. Absolutely. As, as Philippe said, it's very different. Once you're actually in power, um, there's a lot to play for. She's not going to uh, make some inflammatory statements against the EU. They, they need the money, frankly. Mm. But it's not that dissimilar to her other obvious allies like Orban, who might come out with this anti-EU rhetoric. Um, but the vast, vast majority of Hungarians want to stay in the EU, and they also need to because it's also about the money. I don't think she's got too much to worry about in the short term, though, because um, the EU didn't exactly um, take very firm steps against her predecessors in this kind of wayward um, uh, elements, Orban and and, and, um, the growing um, right in Poland. It it took them years and years to take any kind of move against Orban and withhold any kind of money. Um, The EU is not... Well, again, it's it's sort of play things slowly, try and contain things, use lots of um, diplomacy and not actually do much. Um, Philippe, 
is it possibly crediting her with too much to suggest that perhaps, and unlike Victor Orban, she actually appreciates that her country actually is an important one? Because possibly rather cynically of me, I've also always rather suspected that the reason Orban knows uh, he can pull that stuff is that he knows that really it doesn't matter all that much. It's Hungary, and no disrespect to Hungary, but it is a small country. It is not massively economically important to the EU, whereas Italy obviously is. Absolutely. And also, she is pragmatic. She's uh, just been elected, but she understands that if she sides politically with uh, Orban or, or the Polish, uh, Italy would be would be sidelined and would become a, a minor partner in the EU. So she really she, she wants Italy to to continue to play an important role. Uh, she's got again to compromise and show that she's uh, her intent is to is to is to work uh, you know uh, constructively with with the EU. Uh, Italy exit the exit of the EU. She's she's abandoned that policy uh, years before uh, actually being being elected. So already that was a good thing. And then there's another issue where she is in line with. Uh, the many EU countries, notably France and Germany, is on on the war in Ukraine. She is, unlike her two other partners in government, Berlusconi and Salvini, she she has supported uh, the, uh, the 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 the, uh, the the war effort. You know, the countries, the EU, uh, giving uh, aid and, and 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 weapons to to Ukraine. So I, I think these are two important issues at the moment, and I think that tends to reassure probably um, EU member states. Yeah, I think that's that's the key thing. She, uh, unlike Orbán, she very much supports, and she, you know, has historically since the beginning of this conflict has supported um, the EU stances on 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 Ukraine. And given that that's the, you know, the, the overwhelming um, uh, focus of EU uh, attention at the moment, I think that makes all the difference. Okay, well, here in the UK, a Conservative government and tabloid media alike are up in arms about foreigners coming here, taking all our jobs, etc. It's like Brexit never happened. At particular issue is an unceasing influx of migrants crossing the channel in rickety dinghies, a hefty proportion of whom are young Albanian men. This year alone, by the estimate of the UK's border force, somewhere between 1% and 2% of all Albanian men aged between 20 and 40 have made the trip. Albania's Prime Minister Minister Eddie Rama has now suggested that the response of the UK in the person of recently unsacked Home Secretary Suella Braverman has been longer on Albania bashing than on practical solutions. Um, <clears throat> Daniela, Eddie Rama, who I have interviewed a few times, uh, the Prime Minister of Albania, is, is a man of a, a robust turn of phrase. Uh, he has today accused the UK of becoming a madhouse. Uh, d- does he have a point? Well, I think, you know, I think he I think the Albanians are winning this on on their comms approach. You know, he he's he's eloquent and charismatic uh, and he made a good argument while also expressing his respect for for England as a country and Albanian diplomats have been furiously briefing journalists saying, "Well, we've asked the UK to share with us the routes by which they come and to share intelligence with us and they haven't. And actually France and Germany have got this sort of rapid processing um, approach by which they return um, illegal immigrants to Albania and the UK hasn't got it together. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of low-hanging fruit if he calls what's going on here in, in the UK at the moment a, a madhouse. And I can't help thinking that although there is really this huge uptick in young Albanian men coming to um, the UK, it's very 
very convenient for the government right now, um, especially because you know the Albanians have always been the, the mysterious guys of Europe. You know, it's very easy target to just just to to see them as the as the the sort of I don't know some sort of outside force threatening us without necessarily that much basis. In fact. Uh- That said, Philippe, does the UK government have half a point here in that? uh, Albania is obviously, in many respects, a less well-off country than the United Kingdom, but um, it's not really plausible that between 1% and 2% of its male population aged between 20 and 40 are fleeing in fear of their lives. Yes, uh, the British government has a point insofar as Albania is unlike all the other countries from which migrants, uh, you know, immigrate from to the UK is can be considered a safe country. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a country where people shouldn't normally, in general, fear for their life. It's uh, they, they can live freely. But the trouble is, it is also an extremely poor country. So I think economic migration uh, can be explained and understood there. Because but is the, is the UK entitled to say that may be the case, but that's not actually our problem? Uh, yes, that's what that's what they say anyway, uh, and uh, and also the British government can point to the fact that, that yes, there are gangs organising the, the crossing of the Channel, um, sort of uh, making big business out of it, and there are some are even criminals. But again, it's uh, let's put things in perspective. Those uh, criminals, those gangs, are in a minority compared to those who seem to have a real reason for crossing. So, in the end, I'm I'm sympathetic and I understand the reaction of the Albanian. Uh, Prime Minister with his uh, very robust interview that he gave to to the BBC because it was clearly a case when a Home Office uh, when the, um, uh, the the minister, uh, Home Office Minister Suela Breverman, uh, talked about invasion, that that's really about scapegoating. It mm. goes beyond the normal rhetoric of a, I would say, mainstream conservative politician. You seem to enter another political territory, which is normally associated with the UKIP or the far right. That's why it was really unwise and unwelcome to use that kind of inflammatory uh, rhetoric at a time when. Uh, yes, there is clearly a problem, but again, if we want to look minutely at the problem, it seems, it seems to be essentially about the processing centers. The problem lies mm. there. There's a big backlog of cases, thousands, which are waiting in the south of England. They are put in accommodation paid for by taxpayers' money, by the way, because uh, the British government and its uh, administrative services can't, doesn't, don't seem to be able to cope with, uh, with the numbers. Um, is, though, Daniela, the debate that surrounds this contributing to the problem, or is it part of the problem? Because it does tend to get polarised between the line that Suella Braverman has been floating, that, you know, it's an invasion, all of these people are by definition marauding criminals, or we should assume they are until demonstrated otherwise, versus the argument that gets made on the other side, the counterbalancing argument that, no, absolutely, they must all be fleeing from something dreadful, whereas the reality is it not is that neither of those positions are accurate. Look, you know, it's 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 incredible that you know two things could be true at the same time. Sometimes even more than two, um, but that doesn't seem possible for the current um, uh, government. It's certainly not a stance that they'll take on on asylum seeking and migration, which are two two different things. Mm. Uh, a surprising number of um, refugee applications from Albania are successful as well, and there is definitely a, a very problematic aspect with with people trafficking. True. But the uh, I think this is being cynically used not just to scapegoat Albanians, but to overshadow this larger 
um, uh, a problem of people fleeing persecution, ending up here. And the majority after the Albanians, the largest group are um, Af from Afghanistan, and then they're the Iraqis and Iranians. And there's a pretty strong uh, um, argument to make that they're not economic migrants. I mean, you know, another uh, crazy idea would be perhaps to facilitate people from Albania coming to work here legally, since we seem to have quite a lot of, uh, of, of, of a manpower um, shortage. Uh, but yeah, that's crazy talk, right? Uh, obviously. Um, let's look at the United States. And next Tuesday, as many Americans as can be bothered, will vote in midterm elections. In happier times, midterm elections were of interest outside the United States only to obsessives and or weirdos. Such are the stakes now, however, specifically the potential return of both houses of Congress to the control of a Republican Party, which has rather lost the run of itself, that the world will be tuning anxiously in. President Joe Biden has sought to rise to the moment by giving a speech pitching next Tuesday's midterms as a referendum on democracy itself, no less. Here is some of what he had to say. As I stand here today, there are candidates running for every level of office in America, for governor, Congress, Attorney General, Secretary of State, who won't commit, they will not commit to accepting the results of elections that they're running in. Uh, President Joe Biden speaking earlier. Uh, Daniela, is he overselling the stakes here? I mean, obviously, he has an election he wants to win himself. But is, is that a broadly accurate statement? I mean, look, if I was a, a leader who was had autocratic bent and, and wasn't really that keen on, uh, on democracy and I lost an election right now, I think I would just say, uh, no, it was a stitch up. You know, why not? You know, what Trump, Trump did it, didn't quite get away with it, but you know, almost. Um, yeah, Bolsonaro has just, well, he he didn't say that uh, it was a stitch up, but he didn't exactly concede gratefully, uh, gracefully. So well, why not? I mean, you don't lose anything by, um, uh, by this kind of misinformation, disinformation, and you actually just appeal to your own, um, to your own fan base. It's, it's, you know, as I said, I was in DC last week, and it's baffling to an outsider, um, to really understand what's happening in U.S. politics, for instance, I was I visited the um, African American Museum of Culture mm. and History, and I saw a whole group of kids, like maybe ten, eleven, twelve, all parading through it wearing Trump twenty twenty four hats. <laughs> now I can't quite unpick this, and I've been wondering about it ever since. Are these kids who are you know, junior fans of of Trump? Did their parents send them wearing these hats to make a political statement, or has it become normalised? Is this just how the way things are going to be? And it's become, is it becoming, uh, you know, a mainstream objective? Philippe, one of the things that I have found baffling about, well, the current situation is that it's not a much, much bigger story than it is in the United States, um, that so many people running for statewide office uh, on behalf of the Republican Party and even to Congress are out and proud uh, 2020 election truthers. These are people who mm -hmm. think the last presidential election was rigged. And some of these are people whom at the 2024 presidential election may be in a position to certify or otherwise uh, the votes in their state. Um, there are 595 Republicans running for state office. 306 of those are election truthers. There are 436 Republicans running for Congress. 238 of them are election truthers. Um, how weird could this get? 
Yeah, indeed, you're right to point out this this uh, this point this this uh, this aspect because uh, this number, a large number of candidates, Republican candidates, have denied the results. It's very serious. Uh, I think they I bet, are. I bet they won't deny the results if they win. Uh, of course, <laughs> yes, yes. It's like Bolsonaro said. Well, if I if I win, it's fine. If I don't win, uh, I might not accept the result. You know, it's it's almost childish, and that's certainly not. Um, abiding by the basic tenets of democracy, which is when people have spoken and voted, you know, you you respect the result. So to get back to this uh, U.S. Um, uh, midterm elections, I think it's quite serious because uh, clearly uh, those um, those candidates are morally unfit for office. You know, mm. you you can't be in a situation where you have candidates and if elected uh, they will not uh, respect uh, the uh, the outcome of an election uh, this is really uh, making a mockery of uh, how you know our liberal democratic systems are are, are run and uh, and i think it is becoming of course it started in the us with trump and now we we have the, the example of uh, bolsonaro you know two days after it took him two days to vaguely hint that he had lost election. He didn't really acknowledge his defeat. He did not congratulate uh, Lula. It's it's an appalling behavior. And it's not simply because, you know, it's rude, it's uh, not uh, fair play. It really impacts on, on on the people in general, and particularly the supporters of those candidates. You know, they, they, they really misbehave. They become, you know, absolutely convinced that uh, Trump has been, uh, has, has won election, at least he hasn't lost it. And of course, uh, it is very bad for democracy, and, and we're seeing it. And I think what really, for me, characterizes U.S. politics today—it's you know—it's it's lies, intimidation, and violence. Uh, look, and no later than a few days ago, the husband of the speaker, mm -hmm. uh, Nancy Pelosi, was attacked, and uh, it turns out that this uh, radicalized uh, man was looking for Nancy Pelosi herself in the House. So this is very serious, and I think we—we we, I agree with you. We tend to sort of. Uh, almost accept or we've come to terms with this idea that now politics is should be as messy and as uh, brutal as that but I, I i beg to differ i don't think so it's, it's very dangerous daniela is there and i'm thinking again of that that image uh, you evoked of the kids in in maga hats walking through a museum of african-american history is there actually anything that can be done about any of this because it's the as another demonstration of the parallel universes in which people now live a reuters ipsos poll this week found that fully half of americans believe voter fraud is a widespread problem uh, and it just isn't i mean I'm not saying it has never happened, but the degree to which it happens in the United States is is absolutely minuscule. It makes no odds. I think, in a way, we've had too much respect for democracy in recent years. And I, I mean that in that we think that democracy... Time, time to end the disastrous democratic yes, experiment. Yes, exactly. It hasn't worked. Give up, guys. <coughs> no, I think we, 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 we respect it and we see it as a solid institution that has been uh, developed over you know, hundreds of years, decades, and here we've arrived at a place and this is where we are. And democracy is now fundamental to... Um, it's the end point, you know? Mm. It's like, it's, um, it, we haven't fought hard enough for it. And I saw this, uh, we all saw this as, as um, after Trump was elected and journalists were falling over themselves trying, how are we going to describe him? Are we going to respect the office? Are we going to um, respect the office but not treat him with respect? Are we going to normalise this? And inevitably, it was normalised. Uh, we have a similar example in, in Israel, right, where it's just been announced mm -hmm. that Netanyahu has um, uh, been tasked with forming a government and we're going to have 
the most right-wing government in Israel's history, even more so than uh, Netanyahu's last government, which was, in a turn, the, the most right-wing in, in um, Israel's history. But to the point where, through a democratic election, you have people who are not going to respect democracy. And I think there's no doubt that his far-right coalition partners do not have democracy um, as their aim. So when I say we've respected it too much, we kind of, we've taken it for granted. Mm-hmm. And really, unless you fight for something, it's... It's not It's not yours to keep. It, it's a tension and a threat that Joe Biden in his speech that you quoted has acknowledged. Uh, he said, we can't take democracy for granted any longer, which is mm. an incredible mission on the part of the US president. You know, it uh, shows how, yes, they are sort of uh, in high places in uh, the US administration. They are becoming aware that certainly, you know, we're on a thin edge now and now we, we need to fight to... To, to preserve democracy, it's something which 10, 20 years ago would have been believable to say or think. But I think we, we may have, you know, we, we, may, we may be there now and it's, uh, it's quite scary, I have to say. Well, we have that to look forward to next Tuesday. But now, uh, regular listeners to Monocle 24, like there's any other kind, will by definition have a pretty high tolerance for diversity in accents. Here, indeed, is a selection. My name's Rhys James. I originally come from Newport in South Wales, but my accent softened a little bit because I've been living in London now for 10 years. Hi, my name's Emily. I'm from the South East in Kent. This is my work voice, but at home, there's a lot more swearing and I don't pronounce my T's. Hi, I'm Steph. I am from Burnley in the northwest of England. Uh, my accent is the entertainment aspect of the office as people try and recreate my accent and it's not really good to be honest. So my name's David and I'm originally from Manchester. The funny thing about my accent is that uh, when I go back to Manchester people look at me as though I'm some posh top hat wearing uh, southern overlord and uh, when I come back down to London people are very convinced that I am a pipe smoking mind dwelling northerner. Hi, I'm Holly, and I'm from Derry in Northern Ireland. Um, Basically, it's a language full of outlandish slang and flowing musical intonations. Hello, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and I am from Brazil. What people say about our accent? uh, Well, I've heard that we've been called, uh, that it sounds like a sexual hoover, which means it can be a little bit sexy, but quite nasal as well with our open vowels. My name is Laura Kramer. I have an American accent, and in the UK, I get told it is very nice by many people. Hello, I am Markus, and I am from Sirinjärvi in Finland. People often think that I'm either German or Nordic, mostly Scandinavian. They never remember that Finland is also there. They mostly mention Norway or Sweden, but Finland is where I'm actually from. However, it turns out that not every workplace is quite so harmonious a Tower of Babel. New research by Boffins at the Sutton Trust has found that in the UK in particular, accent bias is a thing. A quarter of respondents claimed that their accents had been mocked at work, nearly half in social situations. There is also, it seems, a generally understood hierarchy of accent status, with snobbery visited upon Northerners and Midlanders. Um, First of all, Philippe, as a a Frenchman living in the United Kingdom, you would have no experience whatsoever of anybody making fun of your accent, would you? Absolutely not, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I got used to it, and it's uh, fair enough, you know, everyone... 
Everyone has an accent. It depends where you are and where you where you travel. No, I think as a non-native speaker, I think what is remarkable about Britain, yes, there are regional accents, yes, they are marked, uh, but I think it happens in all countries in the world. And I'll say a, a thing about France where probably it's even worse than here. It seems to me more the sort of division is between uh, you you. You speak English with a kind of posh, educated accent or not? It's it's more that would be, I think, the, the the thing, because when you think about it, regional accents are on display, represented mm. in the media. And I come to France now. If you come from, the, if you speak with a with a southern accent or northern accent, no way that you're going to have a career in national media or really? even in academia. You you better when you lecture or give a, a conference paper, absolutely lose this accent because this is really a, a major handicap. I, for instance, uh, to uh, for the top of my head, I can think of uh, one big journalist in France in the national media who speak with a with a pronounced southern accent. Is the only one. And he's talked about it several times. He says, I'm the only one because I was told several times to lose this accent. It's not good. If you don't speak with a kind of flat Parisian accent in French, no way that you can be on TV or be some kind of uh, respected intellectual because people won't take you seriously. It is strange, uh, Daniela, and it's, it's strange always absorbing this stuff as an Australian because for reasons I've never quite understood, we don't really have regional accents in Australia. There's a perhaps slight difference between people who grew up in the city versus people who grew up in the bush, but one of our colleagues who we did not hear from in that montage is, is Nick Manise, who is from Perth, which is about as far from where I grew up as, well, almost exactly as far from where I grew up as San Francisco is from New York, and you would certainly be able to to tell the difference between a Californian and a New Yorker if you met them at the same time, but I, I could not pick that somebody is from Perth or Brisbane or Darwin or Melbourne just by listening to them talk. Well, I'm sure you may have picked this up in your years in, in this country, Angie, but we are horribly, horribly class-based system here. <coughs> there is a quote I could not quite pin down, but I think I remember it more or less correctly, that George Orwell said that one of the distinguishing features of the English was it's the only place where one citizen can make another hate them just by opening their mouth and speaking. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm not sure that much has changed. You know, as we've moved away from you know the aristocracy to um, old money to new money does quite well um and just money in general i mean if you look at how um in, in our education system i'm looking at sending my son to secondary school and it's astonishing how much of our the professions law politics are dominated by people from from private school in a way that in many other countries this this just doesn't this just doesn't mm. happen um and i think the other issue as well is that we are very london centered um, in our industry, in our media, and our culture as well. Um, I, I like very much what one of your colleagues said about how she has a, a, an office voice and then she has a home voice, uh, which didn't really occur to me. So, yeah. so, so I did want to ask you both, because I'm, I'm sure I've been guilty of it myself, whether there's ever been a time, and I'll ask you first, Philip, where you have either cranked up the accent or felt obliged to turn it down because I don't think I do it as much as I used to. My Australian accent has softened, I know, because I've, I've lived outside Australia a, a long time, but I think when I used to go back a few years ago, because obviously if you're Australian, the last thing you want to be taken for is a pom, um, I, I was probably guilty of overdoing or overcompensating to the degree where a couple of friends pointed out that I sounded like Steve Irwin and I was probably <laughs> trying a bit too hard. H have you ever found yourself either being too French or not French enough? 
when in in London in, or in the UK, or just in in any any setting at all, really. Uh, well, according to my daughter, who was born in, uh, who speaks French, who <coughs> was born in London, so whose who first language is, is English. Yes, I, I I can't hide the fact I'm French. When I just <laughs> open the mouth and speak, uh, she will. There's, there's also the cravat, in fairness, <laughs> <laughs> which your listeners can't see. Uh, but uh, yes, I think, and it's. Uh, uh, but I think this is something also people should be quite uh, proud of, you know. And mm. I uh, probably, uh, although to slightly contradict myself, I may I may have had my northern accent when I was in my teens, which I lost when I started studying. And then I went into this academic career for the reason I've just said earlier. And uh, so in a way, there's a kind of symbolic uh, pressure on, on, on people to speak in a sort of... Uh, the language of the, of the of the of the spoken in the capital, London and 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 uh, France and the UK are very centralized countries when it comes to politics, the economy, and culture. Even if, I think in Britain, I understand that if you come, if you're in the music industry, to speak with a northern accent is is quite cool and 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 fine. If you're if you're a rock star, <laughs> for instance, so it, it depends on situations as well. Uh, Daniela, have you ever found yourself overdoing it or underdoing it? Well, as I said at the beginning of the show, when I every 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 time I go to America, I become I, I I can't even understand myself. I start using words like <laughs> spiffing and 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 all you know very very jolly hockey sticks. Um, it's just a uh, I don't know some sort of instinctive response. I mean, just to to go back to where we came in, which was specifically talking about the hierarchy of English or British regional accents. Have you ever understood where your own? North London dialect fits in that hierarchy. I, I, I would hope right at the top. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Uh, that is spoken like a true North Londoner. Daniela Pellet and Philip Malia, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it is time for Henry Rees Sheridan's Letter from New York City. It's baseball season. Actually, it's something called baseball post-season. So I suppose that means it's after the season. But they're still playing baseball. I don't really understand it. And I still don't understand, or care, about baseball itself. It's too complicated and boring. But there's one aspect of the game that I have very strong feelings about, and that's Mrs. Met. Mrs. Met is one of the mascots for the New York Mets baseball team. She's a woman who has a baseball for a head. She has long hair tied into a ponytail coming out of her baseball head. Mrs. Met is the husband of Mr. Met. Mr. Met is a man with a baseball for a head but with no hair. Mrs. Met was first introduced in the 1960s when she was known as Lady Met. She was then phased out before being brought back as a fixture in 2013. Well, nice to see that Mrs. Met has made it to the game tonight. Mr. Met uh, often works solo, but he's got his partner with him. I did not know that Mr. Met was married. The ponytail, nice ponytail. The announcer in that clip is appreciating Mrs. Met's ponytail. But as myself and several commentators on the YouTube video that audio was ripped from have observed, it seems likely that the announcer was using the term ponytail euphemistically to conceal his lecherous impulse. Because there's no denying it, Mrs. Met has a prepossessing figure, and it's flattered by her fetching baseball outfit. Let the record show that I'm physically attracted to Mrs. Met. And I'm not the only one. Her appeal has been noted far and wide on the internet. Mrs. Met is undeniably hot, 
but it's possible that part of my attraction to her is down to an eroticization of a complex fear of and attraction to mascots that developed in my childhood. I grew up in the 1990s in a town which, at the time, was home to the most infamous mascot in British sports. Cyril the Swan is the mascot of Swansea City Football Club. These days he settled down with a wife called Sybil, who is also a swan. But back in the 90s, Cyril was absolutely mental. In this interview with a Dutch television station, Cyril addresses a dispute he had with Zampa the Lion, the mascot of Millwall FC. Please be so kind uh, to tell us a story about the clash you had with the mascot of Millwall. Who was that? Zampa the Lion? What happened? Yeah, I remember his name. He's been funny. <laughs> yeah, Zampa the Lion. Uh, I was warned by the club to uh, behave myself. Well, I always behave myself. The other ones wind me up, as you know. Right. And uh, so he came down one day, came on the ground half time. He started calling me this and that. And he said, Lexa, no. I've been told i got to behave. Just shut up or it's going to kick off, innit? Right. He kept going. He kept going. I beat him in penalties fair and square, 3-0. And he jumped on my back. He tried pulling my head off. So I just showed him that no one comes down our territory and messes with the swans. So what, what did you say? What did you tell him? I've got the beep machine on. <laughs> what did you tell him? Don't fuck with the swans. Cyril has had several brushes with the police for fighting with other mascots and stewards. He was accused of bringing the entire game of football into disrepute. You can read about 90s Cyril in detail in Jeff Mache's excellent article How a Groundsman Became British Soccer's Most Notorious Mascot. Find it at ESPN.com. I didn't have any first-hand contact with 90s Cyril. The Welsh side of my family were strictly rugby people. But I still got wind of Cyril's antics. In my mind, he was a terrifying but glamorous figure. As Mesh documents, a byproduct of the Cyril phenomenon is that it briefly turned Swansea into a kind of mascot mecca. Organisations who had no business having mascots got mascots. The one I remember most vividly represented a local bowling alley called Megabowl. My first birthday party after we moved to Swansea was at Megabowl. I remember the big dog mascot having an irreverent attitude that was remarked upon by several of the parents and guardians in attendance. In hindsight, it's likely the dog was emboldened by Cyril's reputation. Cyril's 90s fame was an anomaly. In general, mascots aren't a major part of UK sports culture. They're much bigger in the US. In recent years, there's been a trend for subversive mascots, particularly in Philadelphia. The Philly fanatic in baseball and Gritty in ice hockey are both unrecognisable animals meant to embody an anarchic spirit. But this pose is superficial. Gritty and the fanatic don't actually want to rend the fabric of society in the way Cyril really did. If they were serious, law enforcement officers would be involved by now. In lieu of a Cyril for our times, my mascot complex has reared its head in the form of an obsession with a woman who has a baseball for a head. Mm -hmm. 
That was our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, and his resident jazz band. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Daniela Pellet and Philip Malier, and to all the contributors to our Monocle montage of accents. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.